Would you open God's precious holy word to Leviticus 27? It's the last chapter of Leviticus. We'll summarize the importance of Leviticus when we get to the end of, of reading through this uh, chapter. But it's interesting that the message from God to his people about their relationship, the covenant, the importance of his holiness to them and their holiness to him would end with the admonition regarding the importance of keeping your promises to God. Making commitments to God is something, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual way, of course, back in the time of the law that Israel would, would make a vow. Solomon would write twice, he would write it in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, that it's better not to make a vow at all to the Lord than to make it and not keep it. And so the closing of Leviticus is the teaching to the people of the importance of keeping a promise that's made to God. These are voluntary commitments. They're not required in the law. But apparently it was a regular practice uh, from, from the Israelites. Not all of the Israelites apparently were ready to make commitments all the time, but it was a rather ongoing thing. For example, your house was of, cured of its leprosy or, or some wonderful thing has happened. The response sometimes would be from the worshiper to make a commitment to Yahweh in service, personal service, or, or whatever. So we'll, we'll look at this generally. It sort of speaks for itself. But then I want us at the end of it to look back on Leviticus and what hopefully we have gained from it and maybe go back and read it again with those things in mind. There are two parts to this chapter when it comes to these commitments. There are some things that are redeemable, but there are some things that are not redeemable. Now, what that means is, okay, I have committed myself to service to the Lord, or I've committed some of my servants, and there are so many priests and Levites that I, I realize and I'm told that uh, it needs to be redeemed. The, the service, the gift, the vow, the commitment needs to be redeemed because we have plenty of people to take care of service here in the, in the tabernacle. So these instructions are given for the priesthood so that they could put a price on a worshiper's redemption of his vow. 
I've made a vow. But maybe the vow is not just my service. Maybe it's the service of a servant that I've offered or maybe an animal or my property, personal property. Then there is a way for a price to be put on that so that the price could be prayed, uh, paid into the priesthood and thus the person would redeem himself of the commitment. And this was allowable. This was, this was not a bad thing. This was still uh, something via the commitment that would, that would be of service to Yahweh and, and the priesthood and the service to the tabernacle. I'll give you an example for uh, Samuel. Was his, his mother had so prayed for Hannah. She had so prayed for a child. The Lord gave her a child and she was so overwhelmed that uh, she committed this child. This was her commitment. This was her vow. And he was taken. He was not redeemed in the sense that money was given and not put into service. He actually, as an older per child, then was, was put into service. So that's like the vow that can be made, a, a commitment with regard to a person. Now, there are three redeemable things, and we'll see them here. To make a commitment, one could commit a person, a me, a child, a servant of mine, whatever. And I could redeem that commitment that I made for myself or my child or, or a servant. I could redeem that. And there's a, there's a monetary value that's in the instruction. This is a valuable teaching, especially for the priesthood, so that they could know how to tell a person how he can redeem what he has vowed. And it's no small cost to the worshiper. To make a commitment like this was a very serious, and if you redeemed it, expensive thing. First was a person. Second, you could commit animals to service. Thirdly, you could commit property. And animals and, and property, of course, had value. Okay, so these are the redeemable things. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and this is how you can redeem people from a vow. When a man expresses a vow, pledging the value of lives to Yahweh, the fixed value of a male shall be as follows. From 20 years old until 60 years old, the value is 50 silver shekels according to the holy shekel. Now, okay. A 20-year-old to a 60-year-old. If you wanted to redeem, let's say that it's you, it's the individual that makes the vow for himself or a son or a servant. To redeem that male from 20 to 60 years old, 50 shekels, silver shekels. Now a shekel in this culture and in this time, a silver shekel was one month's pay. This is more than four years pay. Think about that. So if you're going to redeem this person, you'll have to pay to the priesthood, the, the, the tabernacle, a little more than four years of wages 
So that's, that's kind of pricey, seems to me, kind of, kind of pricey for a male 20 years old to 60 years old. Now, a 70-year-old guy doesn't say. It's just the value is immeasurable. <laughs> Holy shekel. All right. There's you a good, there's you a good exclamation. You know, that comedian, he talks about Christian cuss words. Uh, you know, like, oh, snap. And then, here's a good one. Holy shekel, right? Okay. <laughs> so you might want to use that sometime if you hit your, if you hit your thumb with a hammer. Holy shekel. <laughs> All right. Now let me go back. Remember? The male, 20 to 60, 50 silver shekels, the male. All right, now. The female, 30 shekels. The male, 50 shekels. The female, 30 shekels. Male, 60. Female, 30. You're alone tonight, aren't you? <laughs> you realize we're live streaming though, right? I'm not going to say, but it was Perry Sharp who said that. <laughs> uh, well, okay. There, there is a reason for this. And I'll just, okay. I'm going to use... Our clothing business, always department store. I'm going to use that as an example. If you walked into Owen's department store back in its heyday, big men's department, big ladies' department, and work clothes, big and tall, and all this stuff, shoes and everything. And you would think that you were walking into a nursing home except for me. Am I right? Daddy always valued older people for the work that he required more than he did younger people. They would work. You didn't have to tell them, okay, here's a bunch of, some guy came in, he was looking for shirts and he looked through 35 shirts and found one and he left it all. My daddy was, you had to keep, you know, the shirts had to go collar in, collar out, collar in, collar out, collar in. You had to stack them just right. Everything was just, you had to put fingers between the pants, the, sl the slacks that were hanging. And the same way with suits. They had to be finger widths all the way through. Man, he, and all the shoe boxes. You couldn't just cram them back to the back of the shelf. You had to pull them all up to the even, and they all had to be even. And this was just constant thing. He, everything, his, if I heard him say it once, I heard it 10 million times. Make sure it's neat and pretty. All right? Make it neat and pretty. Make that neat and pretty. That's, he said that all the time. The thing is, he hired mostly retired people. 
because you didn't have to tell them to keep things neat and pretty. They just were, oh, that's not right. And they go straighten it up. You never saw them slacking around. They, they always kept themselves busy. My daddy liked that. I, I knew how to sit on a stool or go back to my office and hide because I wasn't old enough to stay busy. But they stayed busy all the time. And he, at one time he told me he would have, he would have, you know, this is before I met Pat, so I can say this. Man, there was, you know, man, this girl would come in and apply for a job. And I said, oh, I think she, man, that's a, let's think about her. No, no, no. Won't get any work out of you for sure. And I won't get that much work out of her. So in that culture, in that day, according to the requirements of the work of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, whatever, it, the work of a male, 20 to 60, would go farther than the work of a female. That's why the value in that culture of a male was worth more than the female. It's not because she's not worth what a man's worth. It's because according to the nature of the work, he would do more in an hour's time than she would just because regardless of what the world may say, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. There were things that she could do, I'm sure, that he couldn't do, but the requirements that were there within the sanctuary were tilted more toward the abilities of a male worker than a female worker. So this is why Yahweh says, here's how you're going to value their work given the nature of the work. If the person is from five to 20 years old, the value of a male should be 20 shekels. While that of a female shall be 10 shekels. And if the person is from one month old to five years old, the value of a male should be five silver shekels. While the value of a female shall be three silver shekels. And if the person is 60 years old or older, if it's a male, <laughs> the value shall be Huh. Two shekels. <laughs> it's all right. While for a female, it shall be ten shekels. Huh. Keep them neat and pretty. Keep them neat and pretty. Obviously. I wouldn't be able to hoist a bullock for slaying or whatever or off the altar having been slain I wouldn't be as capable of that older men wouldn't be as capable of that generally speaking as younger men would 
the priest would say, Owens, come here. Take that bullock off of that altar and then carry it over here. We're going to prepare it because this is a kind of an offering that the priesthood can participate in. I'd say, okay, boss. All right, man. I'm going to do the best I can. Right? That's old men. Young guy. Hoist that thing up, throw it over. What else? What else? What else? So there's a difference, obviously, in the way the the way a person could do the work. Age and gender would, of course, factor in. This is given from heaven. So this is part of the law. And the priest, he didn't have to haggle over this. He would just say, according to the law, for you to be redeemed from the vow that you've made, it will cost this much. And so then the redemption would be paid. But if he's too poor to pay the valuation amount, he shall stand him up before the priest and the priest shall evaluate him according to how much the one who is vowing his value can afford. So the priest would say, okay, let me look at your checkbook or whatever. And the priest would make an honest assessment of what he knew this person could pay. Secondly, to redeem animals from a vow, a commitment. Now, if an animal whose type is fit to be brought as an offering to Yahweh, whatever part of it the person donates to the Lord, to Yahweh, shall become holy. He should not exchange it or offer it or offer a substitute for it, whether it be a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. But if he does substitute one animal for another, both that one and its replacement shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal of whose type shall not be brought as an offering to Yahweh, then he shall stand up the animal before the priest, and the priest shall evaluate it, whether it's good or bad, like the evaluation of the priest, so shall it be. But if he redeems it, he shall add 20% to its value. The priest said, this is the value of the animal, and the worshiper will have to add 20% on top of that to redeem the animal. And then property that would be committed or vowed can be redeemed. If a man consecrates his house to be holy to Yahweh, the priest shall evaluate it whether good or bad. As the priest evaluates it, so shall it remain. But if the one who consecrated it redeems his house, he'll add 20% to it and it shall be his. So the priest values the property and to redeem it, the worshiper will add 20% in order to redeem it and get it back. If a man consecrates some of the field of his inherited property to Yahweh, now you see every jubilee year, this, 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 gets, this gets a little complicated. Every jubilee, that has to revert back to the family, the original people. So there's a way to value that. If a man consecrates some of the field of his inherited property to Yahweh, the valuation should be according to its sowing. That is, what does it bring in? An area which requires a homer of barley seeds at 50 silver shekels. Now, if he consecrates his field from when the Jubilee year has ended, it shall remain at its full valuation. But if he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, the priest shall calculate the money for him according to the remaining years until the next Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from the valuation. If the one who consecrated it redeems the field, 
he'll add 20% to what the priest says is the current value of the property. And then in redeeming it, it shall be his. It will revert back. But if he does not redeem the field and if he has sold the field to someone else, it may no longer be redeemed. When the field leaves in the Jubilee, it shall be holy to Yahweh. Like a field devoted, his inherited property shall belong to the priest. And if he consecrates to Yahweh a field that he had acquired, that is not part of his inherited property. The priest shall calculate for him the amount of the value, the valuation until the Jubilee year, and he shall give the valuation on that day wholly to Yahweh. In the Jubilee year, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, namely the one whose inherited land it was. Every valuation shall be made according to the holy shekel, whereby one shekel is the equivalent of 20 geras. All right. So it's a little bit complicated. The priest would have to, uh, would have to determine value and the redemption price based on the current value relative to when the Jubilee year was or is coming and the worshiper adds 20%. Now there are three unredeemable things, things that you couldn't redeem. So they're, they're fairly easy to understand. First of all is the firstborn of beasts. However, a firstborn animal that must be sacrificed as a firstborn of Yahweh, no man may consecrate it, whether it's an ox or a sheep, it belongs to Yahweh. It already belongs to Yahweh. This was when at the Passover, People would offer, you know, the blood of the lamb. They would offer the animal, the firstborn of an animal, and they, then, then they were passed over. And of course, this is, this is a thing that they would observe. You remember studying it in the Jesus time in the Gospels, how, how many hundreds of thousands of worshipers were there and how many, how many animals would have been slaughtered in, a, in a, just a few days' time. So here... The law, we studied this in Exodus, the law states that the firstborn of beasts already belongs to Yahweh. It's holy to Yahweh already. So you can't redeem something that's not yours. Now, if someone consecrates an unclean animal, he may redeem it by paying the valuation and he shall add to it 20%, a fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold for the valuation price. So the first are firstborn beasts. Second, what I call those things that are banned. For example, um, spoils of war. When they went to Jericho and they defeated Jericho, Yahweh said to Joshua, the spoils will belong to me. They're, 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 they're what I call banned. You can't, you can't, you know, and there was a guy that took some of the stuff and hid it. And it didn't belong to him, it belonged to Yahweh. And then his whole family got messed up because of it. Achan was his name. So this is something like that. However, anything that a man devotes to Yahweh from any of his property, whether a person, animal, or part of his inherited field, shall not be sold, nor, it shall, nor shall it be redeemed. For all the devoted things are holy of holies to Yahweh. Any devoting of a person who has been devoted need not be redeemed, for he is to be put to death. The last thing, the third thing that can't be redeemed are the required tithes that are given. 
They already belong to Yahweh. So the worshiper had no control over the tithes. He was required to give the tithe and then the sanctuary, the use of the tithe, obviously was a work of the, of the priests, the priesthood. So once the tithe was given in the way that it was, in the way that was, the worship was instructed in the law, he had accomplished, he had done what he was supposed to do. And from there on, it, the responsibility of what happens to that is the responsibility of the priesthood, the Levites and the high priest. Any tithe of the land, whether it be from the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is Yahweh's. It is holy to Yahweh. That tithe belongs to Yahweh. You can't redeem that. You can't claim it back. You can't, you can't say anything about it. It belongs to Yahweh. And if a man redeems some of his tithe, he shall add 20% to it. Any tithe of cattle or flock of all that pass under the rod, the tenth, shall be holy to Yahweh. He should not inspect a tithed animal for a good one or a bad one, nor shall he offer a substitute for it. And if he does replace it, then both that one and its replacement are holy. It cannot be redeemed. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses to tell the sons of Israel on Mount Sinai. So in that, among God's people in that day, three things generally were redeemable when a vow was made but you couldn't use any of the banned things that were described as those things that are unredeemable. Now, finally, closing out Leviticus. What do we learn from all of this trip? And some of it, you know, some of it seems so far removed from, from who we are. We are not Israel. We are not on our way to Canaan. The land is, but here are the general principles that are important to you and me. Number one, God is holy. He is, he, there's only one God. And we're not to put anything ahead of God as God's people. We're not to put any graven image or whatever. So God is a holy God and we are to respect him as such and understand that he is God and that there is no other God and that nothing else can be placed in our lives before God. Following up on that, and, and this, generally, this generally follows, this summary generally follows Leviticus, okay? God's people are holy. You remember all of those instructions, how, what kind of clothes you wear, how you do this, and what happens if you find something in your house and it's, the, the priest has to inspect it. Then what about the diet? You can't eat these, but you can't eat this stuff. What about all of that? It is the declaration from Yahweh that his covenant people are separated from everything else. They're separate to him and not to the world. They don't belong to the world. So the things that are important to the world are not important to God's people. He gave them warnings about the kind of um, atmosphere, the kind of culture they were going to face when they got into Canaan. And he gave them very strict laws, you know, like the sexual behavior and such. You're going to find these things happening commonplace among these people. But you're not those people. And these are not your ways. 
you are holy to me and you will maintain holiness in your life. And so you, you shall behave in this manner, but you cannot, you cannot behave outside the parameters that I have established for you. So that's the holiness of God's people. God declaring that his people are separate to him, that the world, which is represented by Canaan, the world is meaningless to us. Yahweh means everything to us. Third thing, holiness begins at the altar. When we first started our, book, our study in the book of Leviticus, we started with the sacrifices. We started with the offerings. The peace offering, the meal offering, the guilt offering, trespass, all those offerings. Or burnt offering. Holiness, our lives as God's people begin with the recognition that we are sinners and that we must be obedient to God so that our sins can be atoned for and that our relationship with God can be maintained in the right way. Now they had to do this all the time. Of course, the book of Hebrews says once for all, Christ does it for us. But holiness begins at the altar Separation to God begins when his people acknowledge that we are sinners and we are totally dependent upon God for our salvation. Next, holiness involves obedience and discipline. Now that we've gone through the experience of the altar and we've made the sacrifices that needed to be made and we've acknowledged sin, we are to live like God's people, to stay within the boundaries of our identity that God has established. Nobody else has established these, these, these boundaries but God himself for his people. So obedience and discipline, of course, are expected in lives of holiness. And when, the, when any of those instructions were breached, God had punishment described in the law. And sometimes it was very harsh punishment according to what was breached in the obedience and discipline. Next, genuine holiness only comes from God. We cannot know that we are sinners unless God says you're a sinner. And you need salvation and I will prescribe it for you. We cannot know good and bad, wrong and right, what the boundaries are. We can't know that. Suppose these people had gone into Canaan and God had not previously warned them of the heinous, sinful lives of the Canaanites. They wouldn't have known that. Thought, oh, man, it's great. We're going to have some fun here. God defines holiness. We can't define it for ourselves. If we were left to ourselves... It would be a mess. We'd kill, we'd kill off our, our race. Holiness involves priestly mediation. The tabernacle was made of special material. We saw all of that in Exodus. Those materials meant something. God wouldn't waste his breath saying, make this this color and this that color, make this out of brass, but this out of silver, and then this out of gold. He wouldn't have wasted his breath if it wasn't meaningful. And it all points to something that is 
supreme and divine and expresses the total and absolute righteousness of God. And that righteousness can be applied, can cover the worshiper, but the one who assists and stands between us and Yahweh is the priest. And the one who stood in our stead, if I was an Israelite in that day, in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement was the high priest. And his, on his breastplate, the 12 stones of the 12 tribes, he would be carrying me in there. He would, he would metaphorically, he, he would be carrying me into that place and applying that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant for me. This was for me. So a priestly mediation was necessary. And of course, you can see how all of these things point to Christ for us. A lack of holiness will affect the land and the culture. When God's people forsake holiness, everything is spoiled. God withdraws a hand of blessing. The culture loses its distinction, becomes mixed with other cultures, and God's people then are judged. So much of the instruction was to warn people about the effects of the lack of holiness. And you have to take this and also combine it with what's taught in the book of Deuteronomy about blessing and cursing. But there was a, you may recall, there was a chapter on that. Holiness is a community affair. If one person sins, it, it affects everybody. Remember the guy I mentioned a while ago, Achan, who hid that stuff? It affected everybody. And they had to deal with him for the sake of the community, for the sake of the covenant. So holiness is a community affair. You come to the New Testament. Even in the New Testament, with regard to the church, there are rules of discipline. And there, there is a there is a lifestyle that is required, that is expected in a life of obedience and discipline. Read 1 Corinthians and see what the apostle says needs to be done for those who are unruly and willfully disobedient. You put them away. The apostle at one point says it can get so bad that you would even turn that person over to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. Holiness is a community affair. Holiness glorifies Yahweh. These are the people of God on display in the world. God has promised them health and prosperity. He has, he has promised them peace and security. He will be their God. If they are disobedient and they are disciplined in their lives, the world will take note. There's something different about those people. They're happy. They're secure. They're peaceful. They're healthy. There's something different. The difference is that they're holy to Yahweh and in the world that glorifies Yahweh. Finally, 
Holiness is a life, the goal of which is to please God in everything. Take great care never to displease God. Well, I hope that's what you got out of the book of Leviticus anyway. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, thank you for your instruction, for the principles of life and obedience that are given to us in the Old Testament so that we can understand what kind of relationship exists between you and your people. And how that even today in the church, we can learn so much about the principled living of holiness and devotion to you. Father, bless us in this special time of year. And Father, everything that we do may glorify you and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.